want to start off uh, kind of historical, which is the way I like to get into a topic. Um, and here's something kind of interesting. There's hardly any discussion of conscientious objection in healthcare before the 1970s. Hardly any at all. And then um, there's, uh, there's a lot of it now, and it's kind of increased incrementally from the 1970s to now. Um, why is this? Um, look, the main thing is there was really no need for conscientious objection um, in the good old days under the ethos of medical paternalism. So um, if you've ever read any of Atul Gawande's stuff in The New Yorker or in his books, he's, um, he's quite good at uh, describing this. And he describes this case of his father, who's a GP, and um, patients would come to him and um, they'd, um, they'd be interested in a vasectomy. So obviously male patients. Um, and um, apparently, he's, he says in the book, uh, his father would just say, no, nah, you're not having one. Uh, you're too young or haven't had enough kids. Um, yeah, just forget it. Um, people just accepted that. Okay? There just seemed to be an acceptance that uh, a doctor had a certain kind of moral authority. Now, nine times out of the ten, the doctor was merely reflecting the uh, values of their community, so this is not very remarkable. Um, but um, <coughs> generally the idea was that um, patients didn't get to choose. They got to affirm the decisions of a doctor, but that was about it. Um, now, from about the 1970s, there's this kind of rise of the idea of patient autonomy, the idea is that um, patients um, should be making decisions for themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's not like it's a, uh, a sudden shift. There's a kind of gradual drift from the 70s and the 80s to the kind of situation we have today. Um, but this raises the possibility that patients are going to want, uh, want to request things that doctors don't feel uh, morally uh, comfortable with. Um, and there's also, around about the time when this is, uh, medicine is changing, a big decision happens in the United States, which I assume you're pretty much aware of, Roe versus Wade, suddenly um, abortions uh, effectively illegal everywhere in the States, um, and uh, this creates a huge problem for the many conservative American doctors who don't want to conduct abortions. So the American Medical Association um, comes up with its first explicit conscience clause at that point. And here it is, uh, neither physician hospital nor any uh, hospital personnel shall be required to perform any act violative of personally held moral principles. Okay, now I mean one interesting thing to note about this, it's not um, just focused on abortion. Already it's got this kind of very general um, of phrasing, so it looks like it uh, could cover pretty much anything. Um, anyway, for the most part, conscientious objections have been um, about uh, certain things, mostly abortion, and in the states, 45 uh, US states have an explicit <coughs> conscience clause protecting medical professionals from having to perform abortions. Um, Sterilisation is also a big thing. 18 states have bothered to come up with something. Um, 
some of these, some of the forty-five, their uh, conscience causes are broadly broad enough to cover this stuff. So it, don't, don't read off from that that uh, in what is it, fifty minus eighteen, thirty-two states, you uh, uh, the doctors are forced to provide sterilisation services. That's not the case. Um, it's just that they have explicit. Um, clauses about that, and 12 states have uh, conscience clauses about contraception services. Um, so, and these things have been sort of building since 1973, so there's more and more and more legislation on this. Um, and there's some rising expectations amongst uh, uh, healthcare workers that they have this entitlement to uh, conscientiously object <coughs> to stuff. And look, we're at the position now where a lot of healthcare workers have the view that they can conscientiously object to providing pretty much any service at all. So they can pick and choose what services uh, they might like to provide. So uh, just a little uh, evidence on this. So this is uh, Mayan Woods. They did some interviews with these Californian healthcare workers who didn't want to provide abortion services. And they report that in their minds they were free to choose which activities they wished to practice, so long as there were no <coughs> laws and regulations to the contrary, and so long as in doing so they did not directly endanger others. Um, this has already been mentioned by Julian, this uh, 2012 survey of British medical students, 45.2% of whom indicated that they believed that they had a right to object to any medical procedure which, with which they had a moral, cultural or religious disagreement. Now, this is a rather extraordinary circumstance. There's no other profession that I'm aware of where people think they can just um, pick and choose which of the services that uh, <coughs> you're trained up to provide you feel like providing. Um, if I'm asked to uh, lecture on, uh, for, for example, lecture on philosophy of science at the moment, um, I'm not sort of given the option, well, I just don't feel like talking about uh, Karl Popper, my uh, conscience won't let me, so I'm, I'm just not going to do it. There's, there's nothing like that uh, anywhere else. But this is becoming the expectation in medicine, the sort of pick and choose view. Now, there's been a kind of uh, a backlash against this just recently. And here are a bunch of bioethicists who have, um, I think, uh, like me, they're worried about the uh, rising expectations of uh, medical healthcare workers and medical professionals to uh, be entitled to conscientiously refuse to uh, whatever takes their fancy. And um, they've got various proposals to try and rein in conscientious refusal. Okay? And what they do, um, they'll approach it pretty much the same way, is that they proceed by attempting to introduce standards which might be applied to test the applicability and or genuineness, genuineness of appeals to conscience. So I guess one worry is that um, a lot of people, and, and this comes up in the military context uh, as well, when they say their conscience won't let them do such and such, they're not being genuine. So that's something we could, uh, we could test for. 
Um, and look, all of these people seem to have in the back of their head something like this, some idea of some kind of tribunal system on the military model that a healthcare professional would have to go to to persuade that uh, their uh, conscientious objection is acceptable. Now, I'm going to do the same. I'm going to attempt to run some version of this. It'll be very sketchy, uh, so I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of how a tribunal might work or anything. Um, but um, what I find lacking in uh, the work of these, uh, these folk is they don't seem to um, have what I think is the proper grounding for uh, their uh, well-meaning attempts to rein in conscientious refusal. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and start with the idea of conscience. Um, now, and um, my hope is that once we have a bit of a grasp of what an appeal to conscience is, we'll be in a stronger position to work out appropriate standards for conscience-based refusals. Now, what I'm not going to do is try and tell you what conscience is. Okay, so that's, uh, that's not my game. I just want to tell you what I think people uh, are on about when they uh, talk about conscience. Um, and um, I basically want to be pluralist about this. If they can run some kind of coherent story about what a conscience is and how it grounds a conscientious refusal, then I'm going to say you're in. Um, and, um, but what I'm going to do is try and, uh, try and think about what sort of version of the story about conscience uh, might be an appropriate grounds for testing conscientious refusal. Now, um, if you look at the way conscientious uh, refusal is talked about in the medical literature, there are kind of two things going on. So one thing is um, when people talk about uh, a conscientious refusal, what they have in mind <coughs> is an all things considered moral judgment. So when they say, um, I conscientiously refuse to perform abortion, what they mean is, um, my all things considered judgment is abortion is wrong and I'm not going to do it. But a second thing that's going on is something like the inner voice story. Um, and um, the idea is that you have a, um, a somehow a subcomponent of your mind, which is your conscience, and um, you think this some, has some kind of moral standing. The voice of conscience, <coughs> the inner voice, uh, has some kind of standing. Uh, Richard Sarabji's book uh, seems to, uh, Moral Conscience, which came out last year, seems to suggest that. Um, Something in this ballpark is the uh, classic Greek sense of uh, what a conscience is. It's, uh, there's a kind of, uh, to understand conscience, you've got to have the idea that the mind is somehow split. There's a, there's a thing within your head called a conscience, and it's doing some kind of work in um, uh, driving moral judgment. It might not be doing all the work, but it's doing something. Um, so. And sometimes when people talk about conscience-based refusal, they mean some kind of version of this. Okay? So they mean, well, my conscience just won't let me do it. It's not that I've particularly sort of agonised over the decision about whether abortion is right or whether abortion is wrong. It's just that I've got this conscience uh, back in my head and it says, nah, no abortions. <coughs> okay? 
Now these are very two these are two very different ways to um, ground a conscientious refusal. Um, the inner voice story, it, look, it can be cashed out in various ways. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list. <coughs> it could be an external uh, moral authority. You might think God is speaking to you through the voice of conscience. It could be an internal source of moral guidance. You might think you have, um, this is my take on Butler, you have this uh, moral faculty that uh, somehow really good at uh, locating moral truths and that's uh, telling you what's going on and so it's got a sort of special moral standing. Um, you might also think, um, look, um, and this is kind of consistent with the dual processing view of uh, moral psychology, that um, you have these powerful intuitions that um, guide your uh, moral thinking um, and that's basically what people are talking about when they talk about conscience. Okay, so various different stories uh, to run here, but the key thing here is that it's a subcomponent of your overall moral thinking that you think has some kind of special standing and you have uh, uh, some kind of grounds to uh, defer to that when you're asked to perform some kind of uh, service. Okay, now in bioethics, it seems, there's a lot of people who just don't want to take the uh, inner voice story seriously. Um, they just seem very dismissive of it. So um, here's Daniel Sulmazi, and uh, he's got a story about why he's uh, suspicious. He says, look, I'm deeply sceptical about any form of intuitionism, so he's, he's got a particular version in mind. Um, as a theory of ethics, our intuitions have a particular cases will certainly differ. If they do, as they seem to, in troubled cases that confront us, such as abortion and physician-assisted suicide, then all we would be able to do would be to recognise that our intuitions differ. According to a theory of moral intuitionism, these differences could neither be explained nor challenged. This leaves open too many possibilities. My intuitions about what's right and wrong differ from those of the Janjaweed militia in Darfur, and I want to reserve the right to challenge their intuitions. And um, he then uh, makes derisive comments about the uh, Bishop Butler, to, uh, <laughs> following on from this. Um, so, look, he's got two basic concerns there, that uh, different people's intuitions or inner voices tell them different things, and that intuitions and the inner voice cannot be challenged. Um, okay, now I don't think either of these are terribly compelling and I'll just try and tell you why uh, very briefly. So, all things considered moral judgments also lead to different conclusions. Some people agonise over abortion, come up with the view that abortion is morally acceptable. Some people agonise over abortion, consider all the issues, come up with the view that abortion is uh, morally impermissible. Um, so, the mere fact that uh, people uh, come to different conclusions, whether they do it one way or the other, doesn't seem to um, be terribly important. Um, the more important worry is this, uh, this idea that the inner voice cannot be challenged. Um, it's probably, it, it cannot be directly challenged might be right, but look, on some theories, uh, if, you, if you're thinking of the intuition story about the inner voice, well, that can be challenged. It can just be challenged indirectly. 
So on uh, John Height's influential view of how moral intuition is supposed to work, um, your intuitions are sort of culturally shaped and things that other people are going to say are going to challenge and thereby change your intuitions. So, so on that story, intuitions can be challenged. Second thing is, look, epistemic challenges are always going to be possible on a, um, a uh, inner voice story. So if you think the reason why you want to obey your conscience is because it's the voice of God, it's always open to someone to say, well, how do you know it's the voice of God? Did not occur to you that uh, that might be Satan speaking rather than God or some other unreliable source? Um, so I think the, the claim that the inner voice cannot be challenged is, uh, is uh, unfair. Okay. Anyway, look, um, not particularly trying to argue that uh, this story is better than a, um, a view that you should make conscientious-based refusals on an all-things-considered moral judgment. I just want to do enough to show you that uh, this story is at least legitimate and we ought to take it seriously because people really do make moral judgments this way and they're not obviously wrong. Okay. Um, so here's another sort of worry about what I'm trying to do, because I want to say that uh, both approaches to conscience-based refusal are, accept are legitimate. You might think, look, at the end of the day, the inner voice story is really just a uh, specific version of the all things considered moral judgment view. So, um, so consider the following, if I think that the in a voice of conscience is in fact the voice of God, well why do I obey it? Well only because I think my all things considered ju moral judgement is that God should always be obeyed. So I'm going to tell you some story about how God is perfect, God is, uh, God is uh, a better judge of things than anybody else and therefore um, I ought to obey the voice of God which is ringing the back of my head fortunately enough. Um, so that sounds like an all things considered moral judgement. So if you think something along those lines, you think, look, um, these aren't really two different ways of grounding conscientious refusal. Um, they, uh, when it comes to grounding a conscientious refusal, you're only going to go with this one if it's also your all things considered moral judgment. Okay, so the, the worry is that they don't amount to different stories. So what I'm gonna do is try and run a counterexample. And uh, so for my counterexample to work, um, we've got a case where the inner voice of conscience is going to tell you P, your all things considered moral judgment is not P, and I think it's still uh, acceptable to um, uh, defer to your, the inner voice of conscience. Okay, so see what's going on here? A little bit complicated, but I think you get the idea. So here's my, here's my story. So this is, the, this is a little thought experiment. It's about an Oxford-based organisation called Stealing What We Can. And um, this person, Toby, who runs this organisation. And um, so um, before I came to Oxford, I um, just seemed obvious to me that stealing was wrong. Okay, so, and I thought, no, I'm, I'm never going to steal things. That's just morally wrong. 
But this Toby is rather a clever chap and um, he sits me down and he gives me the case for stealing. He says, look, Steve, um, these people in Oxford, they're a rich bunch. They've got all these spare bicycles and things lying around. If you just steal those and uh, sell them on eBay or sell them however you like and give the proceeds to us, we'll be able to um, lift dozens of people out of poverty. I listen to what he says and I think, yeah, he's right. Okay, so what I do is um, I go ahead, I steal some bicycles, I sell the bicycles on eBay, and I donate the money to stealing what we can and I think oh, I'm going to feel really good about myself because I've uh, just lifted uh, dozens of people out of poverty. But in fact I'm not. I feel racked with guilt and unable to sleep. The next morning I wake up, I go through the reasoning again and um, I still can't fault Toby's reasoning. It all seems right to me. But on the other hand, you know, I have this terrible emotional reaction. So um, what I say to myself is that rather than going on with Toby, I'm just going to I'm not, not going to think about it anymore because that's just you know, causing the agony. So I'm just going to defer to my conscience, which is still telling me that stealing is wrong. Okay? So, that, so in this case, I think you, uh, it's acceptable to defer to your conscience, even if your overall moral judgment goes the other way. Now, here's a case that's analogous, I think. So this is supposed to be directly analogous to the stealing what we can case. A doctor has always considered that abortion is wrong and refuses to perform abortions. You can see how this is going to go. She's persuaded by a pro-choice advocate that all things considered abortion is morally acceptable. Conducts an abortion, um, but turns out the next morning to be sort of uh, racked with guilt, unable to sleep, very troubled. But when she thinks about it, she still thinks um, there's nothing wrong with abortion. Well, it seems to me it would be perfectly acceptable in that case her to um, stop thinking about it and obey her conscience and that would be um, a uh, perfectly acceptable grounds for a conscience-based refusal. Okay? So that's why I think that the inner voice story has to be considered as legitimate and it's, uh, uh, it's separate from the all things considered moral judgment story. Okay, now um, so I have to speed up a bit I think. Um, so, reigning in conscious-based refusal. So now we're back to the business of um, trying to uh, cut back on the conscious-based refusals while accepting that there are these different and legitimate stories about how to ground a conscious-based refusal. So, here's a kind of a blunt stick approach by courtesy of Julian Savalescu, and I, I'm um, uh, a bit sad to hear that he's, uh, he's softened his approach, as I've just found out, because um, he was doing some good uh, dialectical work for me here. So here he says, um, if people are not prepared to offer legally permitted, efficient and beneficent care to a patient because it conflicts with their values, they should not be doctors. Okay? That's a way of solving the problem of doctors who find themselves with a conscientious objection to... Uh, uh, providing particular forms of healthcare. Just don't be doctors and you'll never run into the problem. Um, and look, this seems to be the way, at least in the case of abortion, it goes in these countries. Um, from uh, what I read, if you, the doctor, don't want to conduct an abortion in Sweden, Finland, Bulgaria, and Czech Republic, too bad. Okay? So you either 
So uh, you either leave the profession or you um, uh, stick in there and overcome your qualms. Now, this is a way of um, reining in conscientious objection, but it's a very sort of uh, blunt stick approach. And I think it's probably not politically viable in many places. If you tried to do this in countries with substantial Catholic populations, I think the, uh, the many Catholic doctors would arc up about it and uh, it, wouldn't, it would no longer be uh, viable to do this. Okay, so, and there might be, might well be other places where this is not politically viable either. But um, conceptually, there's no sort of problem here. This is a genuine way of um, preventing doctors from having to face the problem of um, uh, going against the uh, guidance of their conscience. Um, here's another way of trying to rein in conscience-based refusal. So. Um, Robert Card, he says, look, tell the conscientious objectors to articulate good reasons for being conscientious objectors. They've got, they've got to spell out some reasons. Um, Myers and Woods um, go a different way. They say, look, um, the conscientious objector has to convince us that their objections are profoundly held or genuine. And they unpack it like this. It's got to be an ethical concern rather than an economic or aesthetic one. This seems a bit obvious, but apparently some of the people who didn't want to conduct abortions that they interviewed had aesthetic concerns, and um, others didn't think there was enough uh, money in conducting abortions. Um, they also have the objection has to be strongly felt, and they have to be convinced that it's more important they do not violate their conscience than that the patient receives treatment uh, if another doctor is unavailable to perform that operation. Okay, so. You have to sort of meet these three criteria, then you've got a profoundly held or genuine um, conscientious objection. Okay, um, so a committee might be asked to either evaluate whether a doctor who wants a conscientious objection meets either of these criteria. Cantemir, I'm just kind of guessing how to pronounce that name, and McLeod insists that conscientious objections demonstrate either one or the other of these. Okay. Um, now, none of these people really seem to have any um, grounds for this stuff. They just kind of say, well, yeah, this kind of seems right to us. Um, and I think, despite them um, not providing uh, decent grounds, they are all onto something. Um, so, in my sort of, and this is fairly coarse grain still, um, view about how conscientious-based refusal might be grounded. There are, there are two stories. It might be grounded on the all things considered moral judgment or it might be grounded on the inner voice. If it's grounded in the all things considered moral judgment, then look, it is going to be appropriate to ask for their reasons to be articulated. So Card's going to be on the right track. Okay. Now, we probably don't want to insist on a very high standard of rigour here. It's unreasonable to expect a doctor to uh, produce the standard of reasoning that we uh, might get from a uh, professional philosopher, but we're going to expect some evidence that they've thought through the issue. Okay. What about the profoundly held things? Well, I don't think that's appropriate. Okay. 
And all things considered, moral judgment involves considering um, arguments on both sides. You can imagine someone who considers the arguments for abortion and against abortion and says, oh, gee, it's very close either way. Not sure which way to go. Oh, yeah, maybe we're just slightly tipping in favour of um, being anti-abortion, so I'm not going to conduct abortions. Um, that wouldn't sound... That, that would strike me as actually uh, evidence of, uh, you know... A, uh, a good way of going because they've considered all the arguments to their, their best ability but it wouldn't sound like something they're terribly passionate about okay so it's um, it, it doesn't sound like the sort of thing that you would ordinarily take to be profoundly held um, the other thing is if your uh, grounds for conscientious refusals and all things considered moral judgment you ought to allow that new facts might come in that would change your view. If um, new evidence came to light about you know, exactly what goes on um, in abortion, that might make a difference to you, depending on how your reasoning was going. So you ought to be prepared to change your mind. And again, that doesn't sound like something that someone who has profound um, objections would be terribly amenable to doing. Okay, now what if your conscience-based refusal is grounded in an appeal to the inner voice of conscience? Well, I think in many cases it's going to be unreasonable to ask for your reasoning to be articulated. Um, all you're really going to be able to say in some of these cases is, well, I've just got this, uh, my conscience tells me abortion is wrong, that's it. Um, and you might further cash out the story or say, well, and I think that's the voice of God, but... I'm a bit sort of uh, oblivious to exactly why abortion is wrong other than this uh, story about that's what my conscience. So now not, not everyone who runs this uh, line might be like that. Some of them might additionally be able to um, give you a complicated story about um, why, um, why they also think that abortion is wrong. But in some cases, if the, if the ground is just that the inner voice of their conscience says it's wrong, then that's, that's it, that's the story. Um, we might be able to uh, ask this person to demonstrate their objections are profoundly held, however. Presumably um, we could sort of uh, get them to convince us that um, uh, you know, that their conscience isn't um, changing its mind every three minutes, that uh, there's, there's some sort of consistency there. Um, we also, if you buy Thagard and Finn's story about um, the inner voice of conscience being something like uh, moral intuition, it's going to be accompanied by strong emotion. So uh, they're kind of buying into the John Haidt story of um, uh, how moral judgment is made, which is primarily intuitive and it's going to be accompanied by emotion and emotion and intuition are driving uh, moral judgment rather than uh, conscious reasoning and Fagan and Finn just think of that as the invoice of conscience. Okay, so take home message, Cantemir and McLeod turn out to be right but for reasons they don't recognise. We should offer two possible options for conscientious objector in healthcare who was asked to defend their objection. And this is because there are two distinct grounds for conscientious refusal, all things considered moral judgment and the inner voice of conscience. Um, just a little addendum, because I think some of the literature is a bit confused about this. We're simply not under an obligation to accommodate all genuine conscientious objections. 
Um, so the healthcare worker conscientiously refuses to um, offer care to a member of a different race, their conscience might well genuinely tell them that uh, this is somehow wrong, which is too bad. Um, so um, we should then uh, take the old-style Savalescu uh, option and just tell them to seek another line of work, okay? So when I, we're not under a, as a society, under a general obligation to accommodate all conscientious uh, objections, but um, there are going to be many cases where it's a good idea to accommodate them insofar as we can, and these are ways of uh, trying to test them, which I take it to be uh, suitably principled, and the sort of basis for how you might think about setting up a committee to, uh, to test. And I better stop because I've gone over time.